0: If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is not what many would consider to be your traditional Easter text, traditional uh, resurrection Sunday passage, but this passage speaks so much about the resurrection of Christ and and the importance of that for our lives and how it impacts how we live, and so that is where we are going to be today. Today. When it comes to living the Christian life, there are two very significant errors that must be avoided. One is that of legalism. Legalism is an approach to the Christian life that, that takes our personal convictions and seeks to make them binding as direct scriptural commands, or it insists upon that which Scripture does not insist upon itself. And when we go down the path of legalism, it threatens our assurance— It threatens our relationships with others, and it threatens our joy as we will be constantly tempted to be critical of others and of ourselves, or else we'll be tempted to be so puffed up with pride and filled with a sense of self-righteousness that we become, (laughs) frankly, unbearable to be around. On the other hand, if the pendulum swings too far the other direction, the The result that we end up with is what is called antinomianism. Antinomianism refers to being anti-law. This approach says that since Christ died for my sins, since I trusted in Jesus Christ, and since He died for my sin, then it does not matter how I live my life. I can live my life however I please. I can do whatever sin I want to engage in because, hey, Christ died for that sin, right? Right? When we go down the path of antinomianism, we bring shame and reproach to the name of Christ. We become stumbling blocks to others and we, frankly, place our own souls at risk in danger of eternal hell. The solution to both these errors, both legalism and antinomianism, is is to embrace a proper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ declares to us that we are sinners deserving God's eternal judgments. But Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, so that all who repent and accept by faith Christ's sacrifice on the cross and His resurrection from the dead are promised forgiveness of sins, eternal life, adoption into God's family, and entrance into the eternal kingdom this gospel necessarily rules out a legalistic approach because it declares to us as sinners that we can do nothing to merit favor with God. We can do nothing to merit favor with God either before salvation or after salvation. Our good works didn't save us before and our good works don't keep us saved now. It is all of grace. The true gospel of Jesus Christ also necessarily rules out an antinomian approach because Jesus Christ died to free us from that sin. He died to make us His children. So why would we continue to walk in the sin from which He has died to free us? Why would God's children continue to persist in that which is directly contrary to His revealed will? Thus, a proper understanding of the gospel is essential to avoiding the pitfalls of both legalism and antinomianism. Well, today is Resurrection Sunday, the day we celebrate Jesus Christ rising from the dead. It is the day that the church has traditionally set aside to observe and to celebrate this reality. It is one of the most crucial elements of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Historically, there have been times when the reality of the resurrection was under severe attack. When we consider how atheists might approach the topic of the resurrection, we we understand, okay, yeah, of course they're going to deny the resurrection because, well, they deny the supernatural, they deny God's words. Of course they're not going to embrace the resurrection. Those are those outside the church, but there was a time in history when the resurrection of Jesus Christ was severely under attack within the church. Academic scholars with presuppositions against the miraculous cast doubt upon the resurrection, and it was common that, at least in denominational churches, as they drifted towards theological liberalism, the literal historical account of the resurrection was suppressed. But we know... Scripturally speaking, if we are to embrace this as the Word of God, which it is, then we can't go down that road. That we embrace a literal historical embracing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul is unequivocally, he's unequivocally clear when he states, this is, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 14, "...and if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins." Our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. I jumped the gun a little bit. It's the next uh, verse, uh, verse 17, that says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. We cannot afford to set aside the resurrection. We cannot afford to forget, to stress the resurrection when it comes to, when we proclaim the gospel to others. This is a crucial element of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul himself said in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, and that He was what? Raised, that He was raised again the third day, accordance with the Scriptures. Paul identified this as central to the gospel. It was the reality of the significance of the resurrection that because of this as a reality that the early church began meeting on Sunday mornings as a time to to gather together for worship. So, in a sense, we could say that every Sunday that we gather together, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, and it has been called the Lord's Day since the first century we were to continue to trace the theme of the resurrection throughout the New Testament, we would find that it is simply everywhere. In the writings of Paul, in the writings of Peter, in John, and all the New Testament authors, they all stress the reality of the resurrection. But it's not only stressed that it's a reality as a historical event, but it is also applied practically to our lives. The New Testament authors did not view the the resurrection as merely a historical fact to be embraced intellectually. But they viewed it as information, as as something to be lived out practically, as something that's to impact our lives. They viewed it as central to everything in the Christian life. Consider Romans chapter 4 verse 25 where Paul says, "...he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification." Or how he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, "And God raised the Lord, He will also raise us up by His power." As we look forward to our future glorification, it is, it is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as we see we'll see from our text today, it is not only essential for our justification and our, our glorification, but it is also essential for our sanctification for our growth in holiness. It is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that is work within us to make us more like Jesus Christ. And so we see from Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul writes as he's praying for the church. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. I did not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his might, notice verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul says in that text that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that works in us every day as we grow in our walk with Christ. It is that same power that works in us who believe. Well, it is that same theme that I want to continue to examine as we consider our primary passage for today. That We're going to be in Romans chapter 6 as we work through this passage. It's clear that Paul makes numerous references to both the death and the resurrection of Christ. The, the gospel is on display. It is central to everything in this text We're going to spend most of our time focusing on the resurrection elements in this text, not because that's the only thing that's there, but but because that's what we have time for today. We if we were to look at everything and examine everything that this text would bring for us, we would simply not have the time. So we want to use our time well. But Paul speaks of how the resurrection impacts our lives, and so we're gonna pick things up in Romans chapter one and I'll begin with verse or sorry, Romans chapter six, beginning with verse one. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here in these first few verses, we see that the first way that the resurrection impacts us is that it renders sin irrational. The resurrection renders sin irrational. Paul has ended the last chapter with a marvelous declaration of the grace of God. Though sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, thus death spread to all mankind because all have sinned, even though that is reality. Even though many have died because through and through that one's man's trespass, the grace of God and the free gift of the grace that is through the man Jesus Christ, it abounds to many. The grace abounds to many through the death of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then he concludes the chapter with these words in verses 20 and 21. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as... Sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says the grace of God abounds as he saves sinners for his glory. Though sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. It reminds me of 1 Timothy chapter 1 where Where Paul says it's a trustworthy statement and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Grace is abounding. Grace is abounding as God saves even the worst of sinners. Paul says, you know what? I'm the worst sinning a sinner that's ever sinned. That's me. But the grace of God was on display in my life. God saved me so that His mercy would be on display. Praise God, His grace abounds all the more. And as Paul writes the book of Romans, he is frequently anticipating possible or maybe even real objections or responses to the information that he presents. And so some might look at this. Some might look at this truth. Oh, wow, this is incredible. Where sin abounded, grace is now abounding all the more. And they might conclude, hey, you know what? So that was a man who tried every which way he could to find all the loopholes that he could. and To be quite honest, when it comes to man-made laws, I don't necessarily mind that. He was observing the law and he was keeping it. And um, I think there's, there's a case to be made at times to be shrewd and to be uh, observant of the law in, in different ways. But, but there's a danger in always looking for ways to just kind of rules lawyer your way around everything that you can to try to find every loophole to get away with what you really want to do. And so if we have this mindset, well, if grace, if, if, if increased sin means increased grace, then, then I should sin more that, that there might be more grace. That is a dangerous line of reasoning. And perhaps that is some of the reasoning that some antinomians might bring to the table as they want to turn the grace of God into an opportunity for licentiousness. But Paul's response is swift, and it is harsh. He says in chapter 6, verse 2, By no means. May it never be. This is one of the strongest ways to say no in the Greek. Remember my Greek professor, as we were examining this expression, and this way to say no to something, how he stressed it in class. He says, this is like saying, no, 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 no. This should not happen. God forbid. Such reasoning not only flies in the face of the grace of God, but as Paul demonstrates, it is also irrational when we consider what has actually happened in the gospel. And so, he goes on to say, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Paul saying that the, the gospel makes this kind of thinking, that kind of behavior, it makes it irrational. It makes sin irrational. How can you who died to sin still live in it? And then he explains what he means by that statement in verse 3. Do you not know? He, he, he kind of talks like this is something that we should just kind of know. Like, don't you know this? Like, isn't this information that, you're, that you already are aware of? It's not hard to figure out. It's not a secret. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. What is Paul saying there? Scholars have debated whether Paul is referring to spirit baptism or water baptism in this text. Water baptism is supposed to be that that outward picture of that inward reality, and we know that baptism doesn't save us, but it is rather a, a public declaration of our faith in Christ. It's supposed to symbolize our union with Christ. It symbolizes our spirit baptism. It's an invisible event that occurs at the moment of conversion. The Holy Spirit baptizes us. Not in such a way that we speak in tongues or, or other such nonsense such as that, but, but He places us into the body of Christ and He joins us to Christ. We are immersed into the body of Christ. We are immersed and joined into Christ. And water baptism symbolizes that union. When we are placed under the water in the act of baptism, that is a picture of us dying to our old selves, dying to sin, and then we are, when we are raised up out of the water, it, is, it shows us being raised up with Christ and given new life. It pictures the gospel. It pictures what happens at the moment of conversion when we die to our sin. We, we die with Christ and are raised together with Him. Paul says that those of us who are baptized were baptized into His death. And this is what he speaks of. We're joined with Him in His death. Death. He died so that we might die to ourselves and die to our sin. Our old self was crucified on the cross and our in our spirit baptism accomplishes what our water baptism symbolizes. So Paul therefore is saying to us, guys, you you've died to your sin. It's dead to you. Why would you keep living in that which is dead to you? Notice what Paul says next in verse 4. He gives the purpose for that death. Okay, we've we've died to our sin. That's a a reality of what has happened. Well, why is that the case? He gives us that purpose in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. Why? In order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So not only did we die to sin, but we did so so that we might live for the purpose to the end that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might live holy life. I mean, in this, in this, as Paul's presenting this and, and the, the logic and the argument unfolds, it just makes sense that this would be the reality. I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 2, which speaks of similar concepts. Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 2, it, where Paul writes, "...and you were dead in, the tra- in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked." following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That was our condition, dead in our sin. Our sin is part of what it means that we were dead. But now he says you have died to that sin. You were dead in your sin. Well, now you have died to that sin. What's even more, you have been brought to life. And so he says in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If sin is death and we have died to it, then living is righteousness. And why would we not walk in that? Why would we not pursue that? Why would we not live according to this new life that we already have? It's been given to us. It's there. Why would we not live in accordance with that? When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, He did not secure for us the Ability to live in sin and get off off scot-free. No, He secured for us the ability to walk in newness of life and living any other way just simply doesn't make sense in light of the gospel. The resurrection renders sin irrational. Second, the resurrection results in our resurrection. Let's read on Romans chapter 6 and beginning with verse 5. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we, also, we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, for death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul not only reiterates his point at the beginning of that paragraph, but he also expands upon it. He he looks to the end of all things when we will be resurrected to stand before the Lord, and he recognizes that we will be resurrected, and we shall receive a glorified body just as Christ has, and in that day there will be perfect righteousness. So Let's track his argument through these verses. First, there's a reiteration. If we are united to his death, we certainly will be united in His resurrection. It makes sense. There's a correlation there. Okay, we've, we've died to sin with Christ, therefore we will also be raised just as Christ was raised. And then, then He expands upon it as He continues on. Our old self was crucified. In order to end sin's enslavement over, over us, our old self was crucified with Christ in order to end sin's enslavement over us. You can't be a slave if you're dead to your old master, right? When I, when I die, I'm no longer the slave. So Paul says, you've been crucified with Christ. You have died to sin, and that ends sin's mastery over you. The reign of terror is over. It's done. It's finished. You have now been set free. And none of that means we live perfect lives, but it does change our entire outlook on life. We're now looking forward to the day that we will live just as Christ lives now. And so Paul continues the comparison in the following verses. If, if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. That's coming for us too. Our future resurrection is coming too. Death no longer has dominion over Christ. Well, death will no longer have dominion over us one day. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So Paul's argument is that because we share in the likeness of Christ's future resurrection, we ought to be living our lives in the same vein Dead to sin, but alive to God. Which brings us to the final point. Resurrection results in power over sin. Look at verse 11. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul gives a series of commands here in light of the information that we have received, in light of knowing that, okay, we've been united to Christ in His death. We're also united to death in His resurrection. Well, how should that impact how I live now? What what should that mean? Well, that means we set aside the sin and we live as He would have us live. Consider yourself dead to sin. Think of yourself in this way. This is the reality when we believe in Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit regenerates us and gives us a new life. We die to sin. So consider that as a reality. Think about it in that way. That's the, the word there to consider. It calls us to be thinking intentionally about these things. When we are tempted by sin, whatever sin that might be, whether we're tempted by, by lust or by anger or by, by just speaking harsh words or gossip or slander, or whatever it might be, We should be consciously thinking of ourselves, no, I've died to that sin. I'm considering myself in that way. Consider yourselves dead to sin, and then he says, and alive to God. Okay, this is the reality. I've died to sin. I've been raised with Christ. Therefore, I need to think of myself in that way. I need to order my thoughts so that I am considering myself in this manner. And he gives another command, let not sin reign in your mortal body. You're not slaves to sin anymore. Its mastery over you has been broken because of what Christ accomplished. You're not a slave anymore, so why would you live like it? Why would you live as a slave to that which you've been set free from? We might ask the question, okay, that's... That's nice, Paul, but how do we actually do that? All right, it's, it's easier said than done there, Paul. Well, he gives us a twofold command in verse 13 that I think helps us orient our thinking in this direction. Do not present your members as instruments as, as for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as instruments for righteousness. This is how we're to think of our of our bodies, of our mortal bodies. When speaking of think of your members, that's your body parts, your your hands, your feet, your your mind, your head, your your mouth, your ears, your eyes, the, your different parts of your body. Don't think of these things as means of sinning, as instruments for sinning that this is what it's for. Some people seem to have this dualistic mindset of, of, well, the physical body, it's fleshly, and so we engage in fleshly things with it, and the the spirit, that's spiritual, and so we want to think. Paul says, no, 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 we, we don't think about things that way. The body is not meant to be used as an instrument for unrighteousness, so don't present it to sin for that purpose, but rather consciously and intentionally think of your body think of who you are. Think of your mind. Think of your hands. Think of your feet. Think of your eyes and your mouth. Think of these things as instruments to please God, that Christ will be glorified in my body whatever comes. So, He calls us to present ourselves to God, and He's going to use that language later on in chapter 12. Present your body as living sacrifices that's what we're to do. we every morning as we come before the Lord, and throughout the day we're saying, Lord, I present my body to you as an instrument of righteousness. Do with me as you will. Cause me to walk according to your word. I am yours. And presenting ourselves unto the Lord in this manner. This is a practical, conscious choice we make every day as we come before the Lord. He calls us, says, you've been brought from death to life. Now live in accordance with that reality. Now this commands and these, this instruction has the potential to weigh us down. Sometimes in our, in our everyday struggles we can feel, uh, often feel defeated by sin. We, we feel defeated by the things and the circumstances of life. I do find it interesting that Paul's audience seemed to struggle in the opposite way like they're like oh well hey grace is here then i can sin all the more rather than being weighed down by the weight of their own sin. But Paul seems to be directing this information towards those who would be seeking to live antinomian or or lawless lives seeking to just sin it up in every way that they could and finding all the loopholes. But nevertheless, if we struggle with sin, if we we have difficulty in our lives, there is encouragement in this text for us, and that is found in verse 14. There is an encouragement, there is a promise in verse 14, where Paul concludes this paragraph, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you. All those in Christ, you will be sanctified. It will happen. It will occur at different speeds, at different levels, and to different degrees, and it will look differently from person to person. Each of your journeys in sanctification and your growth and walk with Christ is going to look different than my own because we're different people and God is working with us in different ways. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ secures for you your sanctification. If you are in Christ, this is what He has provided for you. Sin will not have dominion over you. Its mastery has been broken, and it will not reign over you forever. Whatever sin you might be struggling with, it will not remain. Sin will not have dominion because grace will have its work. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. He who began a good work will do what? He will complete it. He will complete it until the day of Christ. This is what grace does. Grace not only saves us, but grace purifies us. and makes us holy before our God. It changes us. It frees us not to sin more, but to live in accordance with the reality of what happened when He saved us. Christ secured for us by his resurrection from the dead this promise that sin will not have dominion over us. It will not dominate us. But we will walk in newness of life. I came across a, a quote this week that I think fits in with, with some of this concept. This man wrote that a lot of people think that Christianity is doing all the righteous things you hate and avoiding all the wicked things you love in order to go to heaven. No, that's a lost man with religion. A Christian is a person whose heart has been changed. They have new affections. This is what grace does in us. It changes our hearts, not so that we can be like, oh man, yeah, I'm trying to find all the loopholes so that I can do all the sins that I just love to do. No, we, we, our, our heart is changed to where we, we hate that sin, I don't, I don't want that a part of my life anymore, and this is why Paul is going to go in the very next chapter and talk about the struggle that he has. I do the thing that I hate and the thing that I, that I want to do, I do not do, what a wretched man that I am. There's still this, this battle that's within us, but there's new affections. There's a, there's a desire to do what's right. Even if at times we do struggle with sin and we, we battle with sin and we succumb to temptation, there's still that hatred for that which is against God's law. But a person whose heart has been changed will, by God's grace, begin to see him working within that that refining work of grace that occurs in our lives where where he works within us both to will and to do for his good pleasure sin will not have dominion over you because you're not under law anymore but you're under grace this is what grace does this is what the resurrection secured I hope that this is an encouragement to you today. I hope that you can look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and not just see another holiday to celebrate, but rather that you will look to Christ and rejoice knowing what He accomplished for you. I hope it gives you new hope for your battles against sin. I don't know what you might be struggling with in your life this week, what sins might be present but know that grace will have its work, that Christ will refine. Sin will not have dominion over you. After all, Jesus rose from the dead so that we might walk in newness of life. And we are not under law, but we are under grace. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this text. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I thank you that even though, Lord, there are times where we struggle with different sin and we, Lord, we, we hate the sin that we know is still present within our lives, it bothers us. We don't like that it's present within us. I thank you that we know that though our flesh is often weak, Your grace will have its work. He who began a good work will complete it. He who is at work works both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So I pray that you would help us to live in light of that. I pray that we would look to the resurrection as that source of hope, not only for eternal life, but for our life here and now. Jesus Christ lives so that we may live a holy life here and now. And we look forward to the day when we are free from not only the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but free from the presence of sin, both from the presence of sin in the world and the presence of sin even within our own hearts, when we will be united with you in glory. I pray, praise you and I just pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.